Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough neck. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black home, black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck all the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. 
Hi everyone, my name is Mari Jones, President of the Student Advisory Committee at the IOP. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Uh, we're in for a fantastic forum, and I'm joined with the Vice President of the Student Advisory Committee of the IOP, Jasmine Hippolyte. Um, we just want to take a couple of seconds to actually just talk to you a little bit about the IOP and the forum at large. The forum is an amazing space to gather um, and to spend time with each other and talk about critical conversations and politics and how that relates to overall institutional programming here. Um, in honor of Black History Month, this forum is part of an amazing series that we've been working on at large that Jasmine is going to tell us so much more about. Awesome. Thank you for that introduction, Mari. Thank you all for coming tonight. Um, before we begin tonight's conversation, I want to acknowledge some of the portraits you see around the space. Uh, this is part of the IOP's gallery that we recently had from 2 to 3.30 today, honoring black servants, uh, public servants, and leaders in history. Uh, each portrait is paired with a student reflection just to highlight how their impact has lasted over the years and how it's inspiring future leaders and change makers we're going to see tomorrow in the upcoming days. Um, additionally, you want to thank the staff of the Harvard Kennedy School for helping us bring this vision alive. It took a lot of work, so we're so grateful to be able to keep some of the portraits up and to also have this amazing forum and hopefully create some amazing discussion. Um, additionally, if you want to see or learn a bit more about some other public servants in black history, um, the IOP Instagram has highlighted um, at, the, at least 15 more, um, and each is also paired with a student reflection. So by the end of the month, we will have over 30 um, people who have been spotlighted at the Institute of Politics to reflect on their amazing work that they've done. Um, and so I really encourage you guys all to take a look. Uh, this is all student-led, um, so a lot of student work has been put into this, and we hope that it can really impact the way you guys uh, reflect on Black History Month and this amazing discussion on reparations and what that could look like. Um, so who is joining us to talk about reparations today? Uh, we have Professor Randall Kennedy. is a professor at Harvard Law School where he teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. And something else I have to add, because I am also from Columbia, South Carolina, is that he is a native of Columbia, South Carolina. Um, uh, professor Kennedy also served as a law clerk for Judge Jace Jelly Wright of the United States Court of Appeals and for Justice Thurgood Marshall of the United States Supreme Court. And then we have Professor Cornell Brooks, is the former president and CEO of the NAACP and current professor of the practice of public leadership and social justice at the Kennedy School and director of the Trotter Collaborative for Social Justice. Leading tonight's conversation is David Harris, managing director of the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice at the Harvard Law School. Mr. Harris is recognized as a leading voice for civil rights in the Boston region and has spoken extensively at local, regional, and national forums on civil rights and justice, regional equity, fair housing, and the complex challenges facing American society in the 21st century. Please join me and Jasmine on welcoming this amazing panel culminating our Black History Month programming. Come on now. Good afternoon. Thank you, thank you for coming out uh, on this Friday afternoon and joining us. And uh, we're really all very pleased to be here and look forward to a wonderful and animated discussion. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time, but we don't have a lot of time, and so I'm not going to say anything more, except that we're going to get underway, beginning with comments from uh, Professor Brooks. Great. First of all, let me uh, extend a oh, word. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Professor Kennedy. There you go. Nice ad lib. <laughs> Smooth. Well, first of all, thank <laughs> you very much for uh, having me, and I, I look forward to our discussion. My comment's going to be quite brief. What brings us together is a uh, concern about uh, efforts to address past racial wrongs in the United States. 
That's basically what reparations are about. It can be defined in lots of different ways, but at bottom, uh, it's uh, an effort to uh, make right old wrongs. Some are not so old, just wrongs. Um, and I have, I've been thinking about this for you know, a good long while, and I've generally been um, a supporter of uh, the reparations, various reparations campaigns. And of course, reparations campaigns are going on at various levels. They're going on at very local levels with respect to colleges and other institutions. They're going on at the state level. There's talk of, and then, you know, at the, at the national level. So at various levels of, of, of society, people are talking about trying to make, trying to do things to repair past wrongs. And it seems to me that that's a, that's a good thing. It bespeaks a good sentiment. For one thing, uh, the, the, the people who are trying to do something about past wrongs are recognizing that we live in a society that bears the, the scars of the past, that we live in a society that has all sorts of uh, terrible inequalities. We live in a society in which people are suffering from all sorts of uh, deprivations. And uh, it's a good thing that people are animated by those sorts of social concerns, and it's a good thing that people are trying to make our society more just, more equal. Um, I'll, I have two things that I want to uh, lay down, though. One has to do with the... Uh, the, the, the very title, reparations. doesn't bother me. I like reparations. On the other hand, there are a good many people in the United States who, when they hear the word reparations, they're against it. They might not even really know much. If you ask them, you know, what is it, they might not even be able to tell you what it is. But they know that they don't like it. And that is a real political problem. Uh, if, if when, when people write articles about reparations, and then you go take a look at the, uh, on, the, on the Internet, or you go to the newspaper, and you take a look at letters to the editor, it's this, this very term triggers a visceral reaction, negative reaction, from not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but millions of people. And so it seems to me that one thing that we might want to talk about or here is sort of the, the politics of the matter, because ultimately this is a political question. In order for there to be uh, any sort of reallocation of resources, you're going to have to have people that are going to support that. Uh, you've got to have some, you know, you've, you've, you've got to have a tent uh, that's big enough to have the political force that will enable these sorts of programs to go forward. So one thing it seems to me we need to think about is the toxicity surrounding the very term reparations. Here, um, I think that maybe the history of affirmative action might be useful to think about. Uh, when I was coming up, everybody referred to affirmative action as affirmative action. Nowadays, not so much. Uh, you have deans of diversity. 
You have officials that talk about diversity. Diversity has superseded affirmative action as the terminology. And I think partly, part of that is because people knew that affirmative action had developed a real toxic, there was a real toxicity around it. And so one thing that people who were for it decided to do was, well, let's have a new term. And uh, let's, <clears throat> let's try to avoid some of the toxicity by having new terminology. It seems to me that we might want to think about that insofar as the reparation struggle. Last point. Um, if, if you can do everything, you know, I'm, I'm all for reparations and, and, and other programs as well. But that's usually not the way it works. Usually you have to make choices. And if progressive people are going to be lucky enough to have the power to make changes, they're going to face dilemmas. And it seems to me that one dilemma that might be faced is the dilemma between, on the one hand, repaying debts, trying to repair past offenses, past atrocities. That's one thing. Another thing is addressing current needs no matter the history of that need. So which do you choose? Again, if, you know, if, if I can do both, I'll do both. But if I had to make a choice between those two, and here I'm gonna, I think I'm probably switching from positions I've taken in the past, I would probably take the distributive justice. I'd probably take the address the needs no matter what the history of those needs. Well, th that's enough. Mm. I'll turn it over. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. So, Brooks. So uh, first of all, uh, let me extend a word of appreciation to uh, the IOP uh, leadership, the staff, um, uh, certainly the students, and, and all of you. Um, I'd like to center this conversation on reparations on uh, the question uh, but undeniable humanity of black people. And so I, I brought today as a, as a kind of exhibit, if you will, a blanket that my great-grandmother, uh, Miss Rosa uh, Suber, made for my great-great-grandfather, uh, the Reverend Pompey Lavallee. My great-great-grandfather, Reverend Pompey Lavallee, was enslaved as a child. His daughter-in-law, or rather his, right, his daughter-in-law, my great-grandmother, made a blanket of his patches of his pants, uh, swatches of cloth from his breeches. He slept under it as a man. I slept under it as a child. I bring this blanket here today, this quilt here today, because it represents patches or swatches, if you will, of, of our history. It represents a cloth, uh, a blanket of resilience, but also a cloak of invisibility. And what I mean by that is my grandfather uh, lived through Jim Crow. He lived through uh, slavery. Uh, and I, uh, his great-great-grandson, have lived through both uh, the vestiges of slavery uh, that he endured uh, and the neo-slavery that exists today. So when we talk about reparations, I think it's important for us to center the conversation 
on black humanity. And I'd like to deal with a, a, a few counter-arguments in terms of reparations. The first of which is this kind of uh, disjointed hermeneutic of history. This notion that slavery uh, and its aftermath might be understood, if you will, as a series of disjointed uh, events. You have slavery and then you have various phases, uh, chapters of discrimination, as opposed to one continuous narrative of white supremacy. Uh, it's important for us to understand history in those terms. In other words, it's not a matter of disjointed tweets, if you will, uh, but a, a narrative of white supremacy, the length of which rivals war and peace or beyond. And so when we talk about repar reparations and reparatory justice, it's important for us to talk about slavery as not a long time ago, but rather ongoing. First point. The second point here that, that I think is, is critical is that we take note of the fact that white supremacy represents an obvious asymmetry of power, but it also represents a less obvious asymmetry of argument, mm. which is to say when it comes to arguments for reparations, the claimants, the victims, the heirs, have to rebut arguments that nobody else has to rebut. So when it comes to reparations, you hear things like this, well, what do we do about the fact that you have uh, some African-Americans who are quite wealthy, others who are less wealthy, uh, so we should means test, if you will, a historical debt. How many other groups have to make such a claim? Third point here is we talk about reparations uh, as historically sui generis, uh, a, a standalone, uh, something that is historically unique, as though we don't have uh, precedent in terms of reparations and reparatory justice in American history. Uh, so when it comes to uh, recognizing the harm of those who survived uh, Rosewood, uh, when it comes to recognizing those who endured and survived the harm of the Tuskegee experiment, Native Americans, uh, Japanese Americans who were, uh, who were compensated to the tune of $20,000 apiece, which can in no way make up for the loss of liberty and freedom and property. But the point being is we have in our history examples where Americans have come to grips with an ugly past and made some kind of attempt. Uh, of, of repairing and restoring and making whole. The point here is let us not lapse into uh, a premature resignation about the moral possibilities that lie before us. In other words, the magnitude of the how does not allow you to distance yourself from the why. The point being here is this is, this is obviously a difficult conversation. Uh, it's uh, difficult uh, in terms of the economics of it, the morality of it, but we have precedent. And so I simply want to uh, close uh, with another story, if you will, about my great-great-great-grandfather, uh, a man by the name of Jake Wineglass, who in the summer of 1876 led a strike in the low country of South Carolina so that blacks might be paid, uh, not in script, not in IOUs, but in cash. My point being this, if our forebears did what they did with what little they had, why can't we do more with all that we've been given, including making the case for reparations? <clears throat> Thank you. So that's a lot. Um, uh, it's a lot and, uh, and, and at the same time a little. I mean, we've just kind of scratched the surface here. Uh, but I do want to, I, I want to start with, with one question or, or, pre or premise, and, and that is, uh, 
Professor Kennedy spoke of whether or not reparations have to do with uh, correcting uh, the past. Professor Brooks it talks about an ongoing uh, violation, that the past is not really past, I think. And I think, there's, I think we need to try to think about uh, what, the, what, the, what the kind of context of the conversation is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, so I want us to, to try to think about the time frame we're talking about. What are we, what are we talking about? Repair for what? And uh, uh, I also, on, this, on the question of politics, I want us to think about whether or not there's a, whether you can have a kind of political solution without a, uh, w w whether you'll ever get to the political will without a reckoning, right? You know, and I think that, you know, so I, I'm curious what you all think about the extent to which uh, the, the, the speaking of the repair before the reckoning uh, is, is, a, is a kind of, is, is out of order, right? Uh, and so, I mean, I don't know if either of you, you know, kind of could, address those questions? Well, you know, if we are talking about current deprivation, current oppression, current discrimination, fine. And I'm, you know, and, and, and we should address all of that. Um, when one talks about reparations, however, you know, I mean, the, again, the question of repair, when most people think of reparations, they are thinking in historical terms. They are thinking about, you know, re, uh, uh, redressing a debt from past wrongs. So it seems to me that, you know, well, which is it? Are we mainly backwards oriented, thinking about addressing past wrongs, that it seems to me is what sort of, you know, what reparations talk is mainly about. Or, on the other hand, are we talking about present deprivations, present oppression? I, I began by saying I would prefer, actually, to, to be more present and future-oriented as opposed to the backwards-looking uh, orientation of, of, of reparations. Now, you know, actually, there's a whole lot of overlap. And I don't want to, I mean, you know, and I think sometimes people sort of become adversaries to a degree that's unnecessary. The fact of the matter is that for people who are deprived right now, there is a reason why they're deprived. And that reason is linked to the past. So there's a, there's a lot of overlap here. Nonetheless, if one has to, uh, you know, sort of push sort of one theory as opposed to the other, like I said, I'll, I'll repeat, I would prefer to be focused more on present, more on future. When you think about the past, one problem with the thought about the past is, you know, Again, you know, in a, in a, in a United States of America is a huge place, lots of people. Yes, slavery was, and segregation, frankly, in reparations talk. I'm, willing, you know, I think oftentimes Boris Bitker wrote a wonderful book, The Case for Black Reparations, and I think one of the best points that he made was, you know, people, you know, focus on slavery so much. 
Um, that's right, I'm from South Carolina. My mother could not go to the University of South Carolina. Uh, and, and I've known my mother, you know, she just recently passed away. So we're not talking about way back. There are millions of people in the United States whose lives were uh, uh, truncated. And they're alive today. We don't have to talk about slavery. The, 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 the oppression is within our lifetime. So, again, I, I think I'm, 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 I'm concerned about making it too historical, mm. about making it seem as though we're having to go way back. No, we don't need to go way back. We got enough right here on our plates to deal with, enough deprivation right now to deal with. I don't have to make a big historical exploration. I, I think there's a, I think a powerful example in, in uh, recent American history. So if we look at uh, the effort of Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II to seek redress. Uh, there were hearings, people told stories, they told, uh, talked about the deprivation of, 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 of liberty, uh, the way child, children's uh, upbringings were uh, disrupted. But they weren't forced to make the choice between recognizing a past harm, a present harm, and a future harm. Mm. But when it comes to African Americans, somehow we're given the Faustian choice of choosing between recognizing the past harm present harm and future harm. So when it comes to reparations, I would argue that we are really talking about a, a kind of three-dimensional redress. Addressing the past so that it well positions us in the present to withstanding ongoing racism and the racism that we can anticipate in the future. But more to the point, it's a debt. It's owed. Every year the government pays out uh, millions of dollars when people sue the government. No one in the country says, well, you have a choice between the harm you suffered in the past, the harm you may suffer in the present, and the harm you may suffer in the future. But when it comes to reparations, we, on the other hand, have to make this Faustian choice between the past versus the present versus the future, which I believe undermines the fundamental moral claim, which is a, a, a wrong has been done. And let us, let's note, let us note this. If racial trauma is registered at the genetic level. It is literally inscribed in black bodies. Why then must we wait for, to talk about our children, our forebears, in order to talk about the past and reparations in the present? Mm -hmm. That's Kennedy, right? Um, okay. so, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, I think that I mean I you know I, you know I, I do think that, that that there is a question when we because when, when we're talking about the past you know it, these are blurred categories. When right. did the past end? Are we talking about 1865? Right. I mean, it, so it was all, there was a there was a point in time in which the past you know stopped being you know the animating kind of the present. Uh, and, you know, so I think you know Cornell. That's a go, go ahead, Randy. Well, I don't want to interrupt you. No, 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 no. But I, 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 no, I want us to kind of tease this out okay. because, uh, you know, I think we, 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 it's a pressing kind of question. I, I think that, again, I want to... We live in a big country with lots of different people, with peoples who have suffered... The fact of the matter is that we live in a world that's inundated by atrocity. 
including in the United States. So, for instance, when people talk about, you know, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a familiar thing to see in the newspapers, you know, America's original sin, slavery. Slavery was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing, and as you've pointed out, it's not like uh, the, the sequelae of slavery ended with 1865. The, 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 the horror continued. And the shadow of it, we're still in the shadow of it. And maybe that's even, even, and even saying it like that is probably too nice. Understating. It's also true, however, when people talk about, you know, the original sin of the United States. I mean, one of the things I, you know, what about Native Americans? I mean, the, the whole, the whole, you know, where we are now, the whole country, the whole continent. What? I mean, you know, talk about, talk about ethnic cleansing, talk about genocide. Um, you know, now, what do we say in terms of trying to make the United States of America a decent, just place? What do we say to the person? What do we say to the Native American? And the Native American hears, and I would assume... A good, you know, a good person would, 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 would feel our pain. But I could imagine this person saying, you know, where they live, you know, gosh, you know, we, we have a lot of deprivation too. We, we, we have claims on the, you know, the, the moral fisc, the financial fisc of the United States. How, how are these things to be parceled out? Is it that you know, does, does, does reparations for slavery leave out the Native American whose lands were taken and who, you know, was, was warred against? And what about other people? You know, other people from other places. So it seems to me that if, if we're going to create a progressive movement that's going to be able to... Elevate our society. We have to be attentive to Black American history, but we've also got to be attentive to the histories of other peoples too, and their sentiments, their feelings, because it's only going to be a you know a, 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 a multiracial army that's going to be able to move things at all. So let's look at let's look at what happened in terms of securing reparations to Japanese Americans. This multi-year battle uh, waged on behalf of Japanese Americans who suffered a discreet, relatively proximate harm mm -hmm. in terms of loss of property, loss of liberty uh, within the lifetime of the victims. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus stood in alliance and in support. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Civil Rights Coalition got behind it. The year after Japanese uh, reparations were authorized by law, uh, John Conyers introduces a bill to create a, co a, a commission mm -hmm. to study reparations for African Americans. So the generosity of people who have suffered uh, has been demonstrated. And so I don't think the challenge here is Native Americans opposing black reparations. And I don't think the issue is a matter of African Americans saying no to, in terms of reparations for Native Americans. It would really be a matter of not, not you, but rather you too, mm -hmm. right? Because Native American slavery uh, existed before. 
the slavery of African Americans, uh, and certainly uh, equaled or ex uh, was longer in terms of duration. So I don't think this is a matter of this Faustian choice among victims, right? And more to the point, we do the nation's history a disservice when we talk about universalist claims in the mm -hmm. present, and it's almost as if uh, the, the cry of the victim is designated as divisive. Mm -hmm. The mere fact that you're complaining, the mere fact that you're speaking up is divisive and undermining universalist claims for justice, when in fact the moral specificity of the claim has authenticity, so much so that the people who have endured similar suffering know that you know where they're coming from. And so the point being is, I don't think the how is a matter of us muting our voices uh, or saying, you know, we have to choose the president over the past. I think we can, in fact, build a, a bigger, broader coalition that allows this to happen. And in fact, I would note this. When Japanese Americans were seeking uh, reparations, they counted up the letters. Most of the letters to Congress uh, were against. It passed anyway. And if we go back to like 1950, I'm not sure what the poll numbers would be for maintaining uh, separate but equal. But people under the boot of oppression should not be in the, in the business of taking Fox polls and CNN polls as to their liberation. Mm -hmm. Okay, Ren. I think that I want to underline a point you made at the beginning of your comment about the way in which the... Um, Congressional Black Caucus behaved because I think uh, it, 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 it should be underlined that black political figures, and in my experience, just and, and, I'm, and, and I'm happy about this, uh, they did not say, well, in World War II, we were discriminated against. We didn't have anything to do with your being interned. We didn't have anything to do with, you know, you bring subject to a curfew. We didn't have anything to do with your being, you know, put in these, uh, uh, you know, made, made uh, in, in, in the camps. They did not say that. Rather, they said, we are part of the United States of America, and the United States of America did this very, very bad thing, and we want to be part of a country that, number one, apologizes, Number two, faces up to it fully. And number three, tries to do something that shows that these words mean something, that it's not just words, that there's some authenticity to it. And I thought that was great. And I think that that lesson ought to be remembered because, of course, when we talk about reparations all the time, people go, well, you know, I didn't do it. What are you talking about? You're part of the United States of America for the good and for the bad. There is, you know, a lot of wonderful things the United States of America has done. There are some atrocious things that the United States of America has done. So I, I think I, I embrace that. Um, the analogy, however, I mean, it's, it's, it's a useful analogy in certain ways. In certain ways, however, we've, you know, there, there, there are certain similarities, but there are certain differences. And one difference is with respect to the black American story and the story of oppression of black Americans. That story is so much larger, 
so it, it, it absolutely eclipses the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. And, and that's, that's part of the difficulty. And it seems to me it raises a huge issue, which is, are there some things that are, I mean, are, are we dealing with something that is so big that actually it's sentimental to think that the debt can ever be repaid? Is it sentimental to think that there can ever be a making whole? I, you know, I mean, frankly, in the law, we talk about making people whole, but if one wants to be realistic about it, that's not what happens. There's always a gap. And, you know, I think might we want to, you know, I don't know, think about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe the, the idea of make whole is in certain ways a sentimental idea. So we're going to run out of time. I'd like to use my prerogative in one way here and say that <clears throat> I think there's another, you know, he, he's a lawyer, right? So, so to him, making whole is a legal term, but making whole is also a public health term, right? So, so there's a different kind of wholeness. There's a different kind of remedy. There's a different kind of wellness we can think about and we should think about. But I, I want to make a historical point here for, just for us to close here. Uh, you know, and I've been, some people out here have heard me say this before, but you know, last year was uh, 2019 and we celebrated or observed with some uh, 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 sorrow uh, an anniversary, a 400 year anniversary. And what we thought about was that 400 years ago, 20 or so uh, captured Africans landed on these shores sometime in late August. We also know that on July 30th of 1619, no imprecision here, was the first convening of a legislative body in British North America. And we celebrate that. Your president went down for a commemoration of that. Now, what I want to say is the difference between those two things, between the specificity with which we celebrate an election in which white propertyed Christian men voted that excluded Native people, excluded women, excluded the property list, and the Africans hadn't even gotten here yet, is recorded in history while the imprecision with which we think about the arrival of Africans is something that we're left with. And what I would say to you is that that process of exclusion in that election carried forth into our Constitution, into that glorious notion. Randy asked the question, kind of, what are we to say? Into that glorious phrase, we the people, eloquently scripted, beautifully written, uh, which defined black people as three-fifths of a person. And we come back to your question of humanity. And so, so, this, so, so part of this also has to do with who's telling the story and who's controlling the narrative and how do we request and require or demand a reckoning the, the being made whole even out of it. How do we start to think and talk about this in terms that are honest and real and might have the potential, not of making us whole uh, legally, but of starting us down a path of being made whole uh, in a different sense, in, in a kind of spiritual sense that you might speak to uh, as a nation. 
So I'm sorry to abuse my privileges here because I think we're supposed to go to questions. So if there are people questions, I think there are microphones strategically placed throughout, and I don't know how I'm going to uh, keep track. I think you stood up first. So, okay. Hello, and thank you for the wonderful panel and discussion on a topic that um, weighs heavy on uh, many people's hearts, including my grandmother, who, co who descends from a line of uh, blackness in the South, um, Texas specifically. Um, so it's great to hear this. Um, I'm a first year at the college uh, studying social studies perspectively, and my question for y'all is um, where do those of mixed heritage, such as myself, um, fit into the reparations uh, conversation, as I don't want to be imposing either, um, but that's just something that was going through the back of my head um, as someone who identifies as mixed and biracial. Thank you. Sure. So first of all, uh, thank you for the question, because that is one that is um, hotly debated. Uh, one of the things I think it's important to, to, to note here is uh, blackness in this country, uh, notwithstanding uh, the, the one-drop rule, uh, has never been about uh, degree of pig pigmentation, uh, never been about uh, one-drop, at least with respect to the black community. And so with respect to who are the legitimate moral uh, claimants uh, to reparations. I think that should be understood broadly. It should be understood historically. Uh, it should not be reduced uh, to uh, the degree of, of color one has or uh, does not uh, or, or hair texture. Uh, in other words, we don't need to, in the name of reparatory justice, uh, replicate uh, the very thing that has put us in the place where we are today. I agree with you totally, but well, <laughs> but there are people who are fervent reparationists mm -hmm. who are demanding, for instance, that there be some sort of test amongst people of color that would distinguish between who of people, who, what black people in the United States are black people whose forebears were slaves versus black people who are something else. That has become a real thing. I think it is, for me, I, I view it with horror. I see it as a tremendously divisive development, but it's there. And so, I mean, that question is a, is a good question, and it's a real question because it makes people, you know, at, at, we, we can talk with generalities, but if we're starting to talk about, okay, the allocation of resources, and especially if we're starting to talk about allocation of monies, hmm. then the question of, well, who are the beneficiaries and why and what's their relationship to the past wrongs, you know, it, it becomes a very concrete thing. And sure. it seems to me that that, you know, that, that question put its, put its finger on it. Yeah, but, but let's, let's, let's note this. Note the allocation of punishment, the allocation of discrimination, the allocation of brutality. The fact of the matter is, if we walk, if any of us walk out uh, of this forum uh, late at night, we're likely to be pulled over, profiled, handcuffed, fingerprinted, uh, and, and suffer any number of indignities. And nobody has ever asked me on the side of the road uh, how black, how black I've ever been, right? <laughs> Black enough to be stopped. Go ahead. 
in abundance. <laughs> I'm, um, my name is Eric Mankin. I'm, I'm at the Ed School. My family has received reparations because my grandparents are refugees from Nazi Germany. And um, so I have some experience in reparations. One, they're not very much, right? Um, but but um, what it allows the offending folks to do is sort of put paid to what has happened. And that's certainly what ha was the case in the German reparations. And I just wonder if this is the time for that, because we're clearly, because once that happens, there's sort of a give and a get. And what happens once folks get reparations is then, oh, we're done. Right? But that's not the situation that we find ourselves in now. So shouldn't one defer a reparation discussion until we've come to a more equitable, uh, equitable uh, situation and equitable acknowledgement of, uh, of equality? So doesn't, let me just, so, but I think, I think that's a great question, Mayor. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, boss. <laughs> uh, be, be, because I think part of, the, part of the question there is what shape the reparations take, right? So whether it's financial, and, and, and what's getting made whole, right? Is it individuals? Is it communities? Is there a debt to our communities? Is there a debt to rebuild the destruction that has occurred in, in black communities and communities of color that's been uh, 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 laid down, especially you know, in recent years? But so, so the, I think you're right. So the, the idea of writing a check and having paid the debt is probably inadequate because the debt goes beyond a cash payment, right? And so that's why I talk about you know, whether you need to have a reckoning first to kind of understand the scope and then think about what's the remedy. Right? My, my point is only that you have to, we have farther to go before, before we can start to think about reparations because we have to get past where we are now um, so that we can come back and and put paid, if you will. You have a give and a get. So that's what the Germans did, right? We're, we're done with Nazi Germany, and we acknowledge that. We'll pay those folks. We'll provide reparations, and then we'll move on. I don't think we're at that point right now. Can I read? Um, it, but let, let, let's, let's note this. Um, this notion that if we engage in any kind of reparatory justice, we run the risk of the debt being prematurely paid uh, and there being a kind of a moral ducking of duty. Well, let, let us note this. Uh, Frederick Douglass, when confronted with a variety of repertory strategies uh, in the wake of, uh, of the Civil War, uh, opted for more modest ones. In other words, instead of 40 acres and a mule, let's come up with some other strategy. He later regretted that. The point being here is why is it when it comes to literally the, the deprivation of liberty and property to the tune of trillions. We're worried about paying too much when we've not had a robust discussion about paying anything. Right? So the, the, the point, I mean, literally, think about this. It's in the wake, I mean, this reparations discussion, right, goes back to, to, to David Walker, uh, it goes back to Thomas Jefferson, uh, certainly... Mm -hmm. Uh, if we look at the work of Mar uh, Mary Frances Berry, uh, Ogletree, just any number of people who've been maintaining this fight literally for decades and decades on end. We have a robust body of scholarship, and we barely scratch the surface. And so now at this point, we're going to have a discussion about, well, they might pay too much. 
right? They might duck. The, I think that's premature at this point. Thank you. Okay, thank you, sir. Um, I hope, uh, I'm wondering about uh, a more pragmatic approach to the whole situation because I feel like we're having a rational discussion. And the question that imposes itself right now is that why, why should people, why should uh, the nation pay reparations for something that happened in history? A lot of atrocities happen in history. Should we go about paying reparations for all of them? I want to point out some very realistic issues that, that are imposing themselves. First, black Americans, African Americans are still there. They didn't exterminate them completely. Yes, I feel bad for the Native Americans. A lot of them died. Yeah, there should be reparations for them too. Then, I would start from the perspective of Professor Kennedy and then go into uh, moving from the present toward history in the past. We have a string of things happening in the process, not uh, like the 40 acres that were never paid. African Amer Americans that were used as beasts of production. So there is a string of things going on from the present all the way to the past. So it all depends on the leverage of black Americans who are still here and still suffering and still fighting. So it's not just that one thing happened. It's a string of things that happened from the present all the way to, to history. So reparations should be paid and should be continued to be paid all the way as we African Americans keep fighting for all those things that keep happening, that have happened, that have, that have happened way past in the, future, in, the, in the past, and also things that may happen in the future. Thank you. So that was, you alluded to that. So yeah, yeah. Well, there, there, there was a lot there, yeah. and, and I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I guess as the conversation has, has developed, again, for, for me, which set of words, what set of ideas, what sentiments can we mobilize that will address current needs the best? Hmm. Now, you know, if somebody, if, if, the, if the answer to that is reparations, Fine, uh, rep reparations. Um, but I have my questions about whether, in fact, you know, given, this, given our state, given what's going to be required politically to put anything into effect, whether the reparations program is the way to do it. And again, you know, we do have experience with We've had, look at what, how difficult it has been to keep what was once called affirmative action alive. Now that's a teeny tiny, I mean, you know, affirmative, affirmative action is a, a small sliver. And look at the reaction. It's a miracle that it has been able to survive given the reaction, given the counter-reaction, given the attacks on it. But it has, and it seems to me that it has because proponents of affirmative action 
have done various things to try to keep it alive and look at how it has been kept alive. Again, number one, renaming it. Number two, the basic theory of affirmative action when it began was reparative justice. It was a, a, an idea about reparations. But it was attacked so much that it changed. And now people talk about diversity. They, talk, they don't talk much about it. In fact, in fact, as a legal matter, it would be a mistake to talk in terms of repertory justice. So they don't. They talk in terms of, well, the reason why we want to have you know, diversity is because it will make for better decision-making, it will make for better classes, it will make for you know, better student bodies, blah, 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 blah. Now, I think, by the way, that the reparative justice thing is there in the backdrop. We don't say it, but I think it's there. But it's also the case that people change their rhetoric, change their sentiments to try to keep this thing alive. Well, you know, it seems to me that they were behaving pragmatically, and I'm suggesting, you know, maybe we should take a look, a very careful, close look, at what was done with respect to that in order to preserve that and maybe try to enlarge it. I think you just made the most eloquent case for the point I'm trying to make, which is that the precarious state of affirmative action the evolving rationale for affirmative action makes the case for reparations, hmm. meaning the fact that we've, we've shifted from affirmative action to diversity to something else to something else to something else, and it's all resting on a deck of cards, speaks to the fact that we need to build a stronger, more legally robust rationale for not only addressing the racial harms of the past, but the racial harms of the present and those being perpetuated into the future. And the way to do that is to make the case to the country. To get to uh, David's point about uh, the reckoning, if you look at, and, and, and I'm only looking at the case of, of Japanese Americans simply because it was a federal fight relatively recent. And if we note the process there, there was storytelling. And to the extent that we've had embryonic efforts uh, at reparations for African Americans, we need to have a massive conversation about what's happened. So if we look at the response to the African American Museum in Washington, D.C., the fact that people come in buses from all across the country to see, some of which they could see at home, speaks to the fact that this country wants to have, needs to have, a real conversation, not a conversation about race, but hear the stories. People need to hear stories about black women being violated. They need to hear stories about black people losing their land. They need to hear stories about black people being lynched. They need to hear stories about uh, the, the convict leasing system. They need to hear stories about the fact that slavery didn't end, it morphed and transmogrified, uh, it manifested itself in any number of, of ways that have marked people to this very day. When we tell those kinds of stories, it, it puts people in a position to, to at least begin to imagine what the law might look like. And so the point being is not to duck the legal issues, but to really recognize just how shaky a legal premise we have in terms of beginning to address any of the restorative justice needs that we have. 
You know, one thing that strikes me about what you just said, you really, at, at, at bottom, there is a wonderful optimism about what you just said. Because what you just said is, you know, we need to educate the society, and if we can tell enough stories, if we can educate people enough, if we can make a good enough case, you seem to, be, you seem to believe that people will come around. And I hope that you are right. I really do. <laughs> but, poor man. but, but, <laughs> but, there is good reason to think that maybe you're not right. Um, you know, the, the story, the horror, it's true that, you know, people, you know, don't know a whole lot, but they do know a whole lot, too. Mm. And, I mean, one thing, and by the way, this is, you know, for most, of, for most of my adult life, I've been in sort of in the optimistic camp. Mm. Uh, what's happened in the past few years, I must say, has undercut that. Mm. And all I can say is I, I hope you're right. I hope that we do live in a country that is decent enough to be activated by what you said. I do have my doubts, though. So, so but I think, Randy, you just, and I think we have to be careful because I think Randy just killed diversity and inclusion by letting everybody know it's really just affirmative action. So, 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 what? So, so, no, I mean, now, now they're going to come after diversity and inclusion now that they know it's really a cover for affirmative action. Uh, but, but let's not let that be on this room. Uh, so I'm going to get to you. So, so, but one thing uh, you know, I want to kind of point out is that, you know, Randy, when you spoke, you, you spoke of if we want to meet this need uh, or meeting needs, and I think we, we need to think about what, what we're looking for uh, in, in, in reparations and in justice, whether it's a need uh, or, or, or something else, right? And so, you know, and I think one of the things that I want us to try to think about you know, to frame our way of thinking about this is the difference between justice and the law, right? So, so there are all kinds of legal arguments that we can make, but, but let's think about, you know, let's think about justice and let's think about anchoring what we're looking for in some idea of justice, right? I, I have my own idea of it, but, but, that, but, but I think, you know, Cornell, that's partly, you know, we need to, we need to kind of start thinking about those questions. I mean, and, and, and morality kind of feeds into that in ways um, so, so, but, but, but as a pra so it's a question whether it's a practical, whether it's, it is at least or only a practical matter, which is to say we're trying to meet some needs, or we're trying to heal and have a reckoning and, 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 and get beyond you know, the particular needs of individuals, right? On the question of the law, you know, people get into this and they you know, draw line drawings and the, and the, and the difficulty that the uh, the student talked about, you know, mix, how, you know, who, who gets what. And it looks very daunting. And sometimes you'll get people who'll say, well, it's so daunting that we can't deal with it. The practicalities are just so much, you know, we, we just can't deal with it. The legal system is not... And I, I, I think in this... The response to that, it seems to me, is... Actually, when a society really wants to do something about it, it does. 
So we had 9-11. Now, oftentimes there are terrible things that happen and people don't get, you know, uh, compensation for it. But then something happens that so strikes people that they say, we want to provide something to victims of this. Now, you could say, well, you know, tell each I, I didn't do it. But funds were collected in the, in the aftermath of these various terrible things. Why? Because there was a deep enough sense that we want to do something about it. And that is the sense that you want to nurture and, you know, inform. And, and, and like I say, I, I hope that you can do that, but I, I still have Wait, my question. Let's be clear here. My optimism is not in the magnanimity of, of white supremacists, but the agency of people. Thank you. Note this. The Voting Rights Act, subject of much litigation, responsible for uh, the, the political world that we know today, was, yes, crafted by lawyers in the Justice Department, yes, crafted by Nicholas Katzenbach, but you had black preachers, lay people, saying, well, we think we need federal monitors. They weren't, they weren't uh, schooled in, the, in, the, in the, the Byzantine intricacies of the Voting Rights Act yet to be created. The point being here is when there's agency with people, it inspires or compels lawyers to do their job. And having been a lawyer at the Justice Department, I can simply say there were any number of times when regular folks would call up and say, I think such and such is wrong. That must mean it's illegal. You're a lawyer. Do something about it. The point being here is our moral imagination should fuel our legal imagination. And that's where my confidence lies. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, so I think you were next, and I, I need to know just how, how, uh, how rigid this 5 o'clock piece is. All right, so I think, I think you were next, sir. Hi. Um, I just, not necessarily, I have a somewhat practical question, I guess, in the sense that you started this conversation by saying that there are people who don't have any idea what reparations actually are, but will tell you that they don't like them. And in our end of this conversation, I'm not confident that I can tell you what reparations actually are. And so I'm wondering what that looks like for the people that are affected. And as a result of that, like having some conception of what that is, I think informs whether or not it's realistically worthwhile to pursue getting. Because on some level, it feels like if reparations were something so pithy or small, it feels like I'm spending 25 hours, let's say, trying to get $10 back. That, as an equation, doesn't make a, a good use of my time because the, it's, it's an almost absurd amount of energy that would have to be used by the people that are affected to get what you rightly proclaim is their debt. But at a certain point, the debt's almost not worth collecting if you can't actually get anything that's worthwhile. So I'm wondering what you think reparations are in a sense that would make them worth pursuing. So I commend the work of Bill Darity. There are any number of folks who spelled out a variety of schemes for repertory justice. Repertory justice could look like um, the scholarships that Georgetown University is providing on uh, the descendants of the slaves they sold to save the university. Uh, reparations could look like uh, cash payments. Reparations could look like a, a series of an, investments that put people who have been harmed in the place where they would have been 
uh, but for an intergenerational theft of wealth. Okay? So my point being here is there are strategies um, that go beyond simple cash payments. But I know this. What other group is called upon to simply dismiss the idea of being paid in cash? My great-great-grandfather objected to that. I, I think I do too. Like, we need not take that off the table. So my point being is there are a variety of strategies well discussed, uh, and I would simply, simply say this. Uh, it is well worth our time. So, so you know, I, I think it's a, good, it's a great question. And, and I, I will say that I, we, when we talked about this early in preparation, I, I, I said to Randy, you know, you know, Randy wrote a book, the, the title of which is The N-Word, right? You know, the word, and, uh, and, and I said to him that the reparations, you know, in a way is the R-word. You know, it's a, it's, you don't say it in polite company, right? Because... Uh, because it means so many different things to so many different people. But, you know, and I, I want to take the Georgetown example for, for a second because it's very telling. So it's not, it's not just those scholarships. Right. It, it, you know, it is that the students of Georgetown University voted overwhelmingly to levy a fee on themselves, right? $27.20 for the 272 enslaved people who were sold to keep Georgetown going. I'm an alumnus of Georgetown. I know this, right? They, they levied a, a fee a, a, for $27.20 every semester, right? And that's, that's deemed to generate likely $419,000 a year. And there are over 1,000 known descendants of the people that Georgetown said all died in the swamp, right, after they sold them south, right? And there was a fascinating interview with one of those descendants who did the math and said, that's $50, you know, that's, that's $50. Now, now, now and, and, and what he meant by that is, you owe me so much more, right? I'll take the 50 as a starting point, uh, but we need to think about kind of what else we're going to do. And so, you know, I do think, as opposed to the gentleman over here, I mean, the 50 is, in that case, is a beginning and not an end, right? And, and it's an acknowledgement of the need. But to your larger point, I think... We need, to under, we need to think about whether we're talking about simply monetary, I mean, monetary is part of it, but whether there's some other notion of being made whole that's important to us as well. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, but I do think, Randy, I mean, this, there is a question about what we call it, you know? Yeah, but on, on the question of what we call it, the fact of the matter is there's a, a library on reparations it has taken many different forms. It can take many different forms. And I think it's important to know that, it's a, it's a, again, the, the, the basic idea is repairing past wrongs. That can take lots of different forms. And for people who are really attracted to the reparationist project, I think they should take you know, solace in that. It's not... It's not a single thing. It can be a lot of different things. And we can experiment, maybe. We can, maybe in different contexts, you can have different programs. So it's lots of different things. It's, it's not just one particular thing. That's over with. Okay, so um, I, say we, I, I can't remember. I think we'll go one, two. Okay, one, one second. Okay. Go, go, go. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Professor Brooks, um, Mr. Kennedy. So 
when I am listening, I want to take a step beyond reparations. I think of a democracy that was supposed to evolve. We became lazy in our democracy in terms of evolving, pushing it to where it should be. We've become lazy in terms of pushing the federal government to be where they should be. Only in terms of 9-11, in terms of fear, do we then react out of that fear or a sense of patriotism to push further. So when I think of reparations or even affirmative action, like affirmative action is just a Band-Aid for after the problem. We need to change our public education system. It needs to start earlier. So in terms of reparations, in terms of what the next step is, in terms of what should have evolved in the past several decades, what do you think are some of those key steps or key issues that should be asked, um, both from the African-American community, but for all minorities that are targeted unfairly in a society that sometimes we see our worst when it comes to fear? Well, it seems to me you're on the right, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned one. We need to have, you know, decent, strong, excellent, yeah, not decent, excellent public education. That would be a, that'd be a nice start. We need to have an administration of criminal justice that's not criminal. Uh, we need to have, you know, um, uh, housing available to people in a, in, you know, to, to everyone. We need to have, there's, there's so many things actually that we need to do, and you're absolutely right. We, you know, we say we live in an advanced democracy, but actually we live in a, you know, we, we, we live in a quite uh, primitive polity. It's a pigmentocracy still. It's uh, indecent in so many different ways, and we need to, you know, address the things that have been mentioned, the things you mentioned, the things I mentioned, and, and, and much more, to tell you the truth. So and I think on, on the education side, I mean, I, I would say and it, we, we, need to re, we need to think clearly and carefully about what we mean about improving education and get beyond this notion that the, that the, the solution to our educational problems is to, is to quote, integrate uh, schools, right? I mean, I think, and we need to think about the fact that when we, when we talk about housing, we need to kind of think about what we mean because we, we talk about knowing what makes for a good, healthy community, right? right? And then we say, in order to have that, you've got to move to the white neighborhood, right? So the, so the question is, so look, I'll tell you, from where I work at my institution, uh, you know, we have this notion called community justice, and it has to do with making communities whole, right? If we know what makes for a good community, why don't we spend the resources and dedicate the resources to make all those communities whole, as opposed to saying that a couple of you who are lucky enough to rise to the top of a lottery get to move somewhere else, right? And so, but that take, but, and, and that is part of the reckoning. You see, changing, changing, our, our, changing the way we look at these things is really critical. And so that's how you combat white supremacy, this notion that when you do a, a, an index of dissimilarity and they tell you and, and, and it gives you a result of how many people need to move, they don't say how many people need to move, they say how many black people do you have to move to the white neighborhood to get balance? Well... You know, it's, it's part of, as we said, it's who controls the narrative and what are we doing and what does repair mean? 
So yes, we need to do the education. Yes, we need to do the housing, but we need to change the way we think about doing it. And that gets back to Cornell's point about the agency. And the only way that's ever going to happen is for people of color and people in communities to mobilize and organize and demand that change. And you don't have to call it reparations. You know, <laughs> you call it reallocation of resources. You, you, you call it, hmm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sorry. Okay, so sir, you've been so patient. Uh, Jed Schwartz, uh, County, uh, Somerville. Uh, uh, it, it seems to me that uh, I wanted to follow along the, the, the path of the last two questions and, and answers, but uh, that uh, uh, it, when, you, when you, on the one hand, you have white guilt, on the other hand, you have the request or demand for reparations. It, it's, reparations is not a specific enough offer to, to make a, a, an agreement possible, it ha, it's, it's too inchoate, it's, it's too, it's too vague, uh, 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 and uh, in, in order to make it more specific, you would need, I think, to ask the question, which which ha, has been being asked here, subsequent to the beginning of the talk. Uh, you need to ask, what what should these reparations purpose be, um, and and be, because. The reason that, that the answer gets frosted so much is the, the assumption that there will be some enormous sum of money involved. Uh, and, and as far as uh, affirmative action goes, uh, uh, there are people all over the country who are dropping out of college because they don't have enough money to pay tuition. I'm presuming, and this is a request for information from the panel, that a good number of those students are black. African-American. Uh, therefore, uh, and this is also a request for information, what is the state of the law pertaining to tax deductibility of donations to scholarship funds for uh, educationally needy students, whether they are, whatever their race? Because uh, I, I, I've had this argument with my mother, and she says, well, the, the, those laws are already on the books, and I don't know w whether that is in fact the case. Uh, but if they are on the books, and there are still, you know, large numbers of, of uh, needy students, including white people, but also uh, black students who are, 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 can't afford to go to college, uh, then then appeals need to be made to the high rollers in in the various communities, including, like for example, the National Basketball Association. I mean, uh, uh, can, can you donate? This is something that LeBron James addressed at one point, but I don't know whether it's being addressed on a widespread level. And, uh, should, I, should I just... Oh, you, I'm sorry. So you have a second one? That's one question. That's one question. That's maybe enough. Okay. okay. All right. So, okay. I don't... Here's my reaction to your, 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 your statement. Um, it's not a, an answer, but it, it's, it's just a reaction. It seems to me that one thing that was in your statement, and I think it's a very powerful question that is often not focused on, is you know, ultimately, what do we want? I mean, the, the, the term racial justice has been used in this you know, over the last hour many, many, many times question, 
what are its what does it look like? Martin Luther King Jr. on the night before he was you know killed talked about having glimpsed the promised land, but he didn't tell us what the topography of the promised land was. How would we know when we've gotten to the promised land? And here's your question was, well, you know, you've, if, if you're going to make a demand, make a demand that has some specificity so that somebody can, you know, respond back and forth. So, I mean, here one comes to mind. I mean, I've heard people say, oh, we'll have hit the promised land when you can go to a, um, uh, a hospital and go to where the newborns are, and we will have gotten to the promised land when we look at people from different racial groups and we say, we can't make um, strong, um, uh, we, 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 can't, we can't tell you in a strong way what the likelihood is of them becoming president, becoming senator, going to jail, becoming a millionaire, becoming a lawyer, going to college. When you can't make those sorts of assessments, like today you can, when it's as likely that you know, the black kid will be the senator as the white kid or the Asian American kid or the Indian kid, that's when we will have hit the promised land. Now, that, that has some specificity to it. Now, you know, it's way away. In fact, it's so far away that somebody might say, actually, that it's utopian. But to that extent, that just shows us what a bad situation we're currently in. But I, it seems to me that that question of what is racial justice, what are its boundaries, how do we know, how would we know it if we even got there, Excuse me, that's a good question. Cornell. May I lift up uh, a couple of points here? Uh, sir, you, you, you juxtapose, uh, you use the phrase white guilt. Yeah. And I want to note here, this is not a matter of white guilt, but American responsibility. Thank you. Right? So American responsibility for the sins of white supremacy. And, and then two, going to Randy's point, like how will we know? Right? So when we talk about the promised land, note, note, note the biblical metaphor. Scouts were sent into the promised land. Right? Uh, the, the Israelites didn't know everything that was in the promised land. But here's what we do know. We know what the disparities are, the differences are between black and white intergenerational wealth. We know the differences between black net worth and white net worth. So the promised land might look something like Yes, what Randy said in terms of the possibilities of black children having, being the same as white children, but inter, inter, say, intergenerational wealth being the same, net worth being the same, educational opportunities being the same. In other words, back in the, back in the day, back in the 60s, people used an old-fashioned word called equality. Mm. Right? Equality might look a little like what the promised land is. The point being here is when we start talking about American responsibility, not white guilt. White guilt is debilitating. Responsibility goes to uh, what this country uh, reckons with and owes people who were literally, literally uh, robbed, right? So one of my forebears uh, owned an island off the coast of South Carolina. Not a particularly wealthy island, right? Uh, but it was lost. Part of that land lost black folks being deprived. The point being here is the 
Ways in which we have been robbed are tangible, measurable, quantifiable, and ultimately moral. Be more. So thank you. So I think we should. I, I think I'm going to get a glare somewhere soon. But I, I would say that, that, that next year, again, we, there are anniversaries all around us. Next year is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, right? where our government facilitated and bombed black people and destroyed a neighborhood and tried to destroy a people. This was our government. Yesterday was the 107th birthday of Wes Young, one of the last survivors of Tulsa. And yesterday, the city of Tulsa came out, the mayor of Tulsa stood up and said, we are not going to give reparations. We're going to put up a new development. So I would say that 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 promised land does have some concrete (laughs) geography, you know, that the point at which, you know, the the, the people of Tulsa and the descendants, and now, you know, those descendants are gone. You know, you invoked Charles Ogletree earlier. You know, Charles Ogletree uh, dedicated himself to resolving the matter of the descendants uh, of, of, of the victims of the Tulsa massacre. It's a very concrete thing. Uh, and it's a very concrete thing that could, uh, that, that, that could find a remedy. And, and, and getting back to Cornell's point, the people of Tulsa are fighting to make it happen. Um, but it's a long struggle. I agree with everything you said in response to Ryan's question there. <laughs> one but. thing, though, except with one thing. <laughs> except with one thing. What's the one thing? Guilt. I think that guilt is a very civilizing and decent um, sentiment. And that one of the terrible things is people don't feel guilty enough. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, all right, preach. I, 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 there's some merit to what you're saying, but I respectfully disagree in this respect. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about cheap grace, right? There's such a thing as cheap guilt. When you engage in moral hand-wringing and tut-tut and shake your head over the the offenses of the past, the evil of the past, but you take no responsibility... That's bad guilt. (laughs) I like the word word responsibility because it implies action. Commitment. On that note, uh, I want to thank Professor Kennedy for some books so much, and thank you all. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. All right. All right. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I, so I did my duty, but now go ahead. I was just listening um, to some of the comments earlier and the, the comment that reparation was outdated. And so I went back to look it up and I, I feel like it's not outdated because what it does, it, it talks about making amends for the wrong. And I think as we talk about that, the United States of America has to reckon with the fact that wrong was done. And there are so many streams of that wrong, whether it was slavery, Jim Crow, the 13th Amendment, all of it was economic. All of it was economic, and we lost. And so I would say we need to have reparations, and it needs to be economic because we have lost so much 
economically, which keeps us down. We can't, you know, if we had economics, we'd be able to access health care, mental health care, a lot of different things that we were not able to access because we were building this nation. So I think reparation is a very strong word, and we should not mix it up because it makes the United States acknowledge the wrong and reckon, which is the first start with action. If we reckon that we did something wrong and acknowledge it and it hits our heart, then we'll say let's move and do something to heal. So that's my benediction. Thank you. It was. Yeah. All right. All right, you guys. Hey, thank you, man. Thanks, bro. Hey, philosophical friend. It is Christopher here. And today we're going to look at the possibility of reparations. The protests have been amazing in galvanizing support and actually applying pressure for change. And along with protests come policy change. One way that I've heard people talking about changing policy is in terms of repairing the damage that's been done to some degree through official apology and some sort of restitution or atonement for the original sin of the United States, which is slavery and the long history of injustices against African Americans. We're going to look at an argument for reparations from philosopher Bernard Boxel, and we're going to look at quotes from prominent African-American leaders in the United States that have important things to say about what's happening right now and what we need to do to really create lasting change. Welcome to The Philosophical Life. Hi, I'm Professor Clues, and I designed The Philosophical Life to offer you real philosophy to help you really think critically about everyday issues. If this is your first time here, consider subscribing to the channel and clicking the bell so you don't miss any future videos. Let's jump into the slides. Today, we're going to connect comments made from leaders in the United States to reparations. We're going to unpack Trevor Noah's comments on reparations and white privilege. We'll then recognize six key facts concerning past and present injustices committed against African Americans. And then last but not least, we're going to look at philosopher Bernard Boxel's argument for reparations. Let's start by taking a look at a quote from Congresswoman Barbara Lee. She's out of California, and she's recently put together a committee or coalition on truth, racial healing, and transformation. She says the following, quote, only by understanding our past and confronting the errors that still haunt us today can we truly move forward as a people and a country. What is that error of the past? Well, essentially it's racism, but more specifically it's the way it's been institutionalized in the form of slavery, in the form of segregations, in the form of policing and laws, and in the form of incarceration, just to name a few. Senator Cory Booker had an interesting quote about love being at the core of our ideals. As he says, quote, we are over-policed as a society. We are investing in police, which is not solving problems, but making them worse. We should be in a more compassionate country a more loving country, and I know that love is at the core of our ideals, but it needs to be made manifest in our policies. We would spend less money, we would elevate human dignity and human potential, and we would set a new standard on planet Earth for how we treat those who are vulnerable as opposed to what we're seeing right now. So we have the need to, from the Congresswoman to look at the past and rectify it in order to 
actually successfully move forward. And then we have Senator Cory Booker reminding us that love is at the core of our ideals as a country. Now let's put the two together. Well, love requires an apology and making right the wrong or wrongs. You don't love someone, as it says there, by ignoring their pain. That's not loving by acting like they're not hurting and have been hurt historically. You don't love someone by continuing to inflict harm on them. And you do love somebody by asking for forgiveness for the harm you have inflicted on them, whether directly or indirectly by being complicit in a system that thereby favors you and to the detriment and to the harm of others. So love requires looking back, acknowledging wrongs and harms, and making amends or atoning, as it says in the title of the, the video, atoning for essentially America's original sin, which is slavery, and then the things that came out of that. Now, real love involves taking seriously reparations for black Americans. So real love involves compassion and healing for those that are subject to unjust and unequal social forces that systematically limit opportunities and impose other harms on members of a given population, which is oppression. It involves acknowledgement and repair of the wrongs done to African Americans. Now, here's an interesting quote from President Barack Obama. He gave a town hall, a virtual town hall meeting hosted by my brother's Keeper Alliance, which is a great alliance. I encourage you to check them out and I'll provide a link to them below if you wanna see the work they're doing on this front. So here's a quote that I found interesting from him. He said, structural problems here in the United States have been thrown into high relief. They're the outcomes not just of the immediate moments in time, but they're the result of a long history of slavery and Jim Crow and redlining and institutionalized racism that too often have been the plague of the original sin of our society. So the original sin is racism and more specifically slavery. And a lot of these current moments we tend to take in isolation like they just came out of the blue. But really, when you look back, you can see this pattern of unequal treatment of African Americans Almost every single period, actually every single period in, in the United States history, you can see this pattern and it's been institutionalized through laws and so on. Now, here's a common objection. First, let's get on the table. What is white privilege? There are a lot of definitions floating around, but let's actually pin it down in this quote from an ethics textbook by Rush Schaefer Landau. So he defines it as the set of social, political and economic advantages enjoyed by white people in Western countries that are not enjoyed by other racial or ethnic groups living in those countries. So it's a set of advantages enjoyed by white people that are not enjoyed by other racial or ethnic groups. Now, here's the objection, right? So if you are in the United States and you're white, and you're living in a poor part of America, or you just happen to be down on your luck, you might have just lost your job, you might have lost your job for other other reasons a while ago, and you've had trouble getting back on your feet, you might say, look, I'm white and poor and not enjoying 
any such advantages. So if there really is such a thing as white privilege, where are my advantages? In fact, I'm really struggling. I'm suffering just as much as some African-Americans, if not more. So where's the privilege, right? Now, we're going to look at Trevor Noah, who confronted this question on this particular occasion, he got the following question posed to him by an audience member. Quote, do you think reparations should just go to one group or should it target people in the same socioeconomic group? There are white people that have been disenfranchised recently by deindustrialization. A lot of people in manufacturing jobs, their areas were affected, right? As he says, quote, in response, reparations is a specific conversation about a specific time in America. Black people were slaves. Look at the numbers. Look at the time. Look at the level of work. You could not work toward your freedom for most black people in America. You lived and died as a slave, at least for those in the South. So that's what reparations is about. And he cautions this audience member and his audience at large against blurring important lines regarding levels of suffering. As he says, if you're not careful, you combine everybody's suffering into the same ball and you make it seem like all injustices have the same weighting and they don't. Just like crimes, theft isn't the same as murder. We don't try them the same way. As much as there is a white person suffering today, there are levels of that suffering. So what he's essentially saying here is if you look, if you're not careful and you take just a particular white person and the pain and suffering they're going through, and then you compare it to an African-American or, or the group of African-Americans in the United States, you might say this white person is suffering just as much as this other group. So they aren't enjoying any sort of white privilege. So white privilege doesn't really exist for most white people. Maybe there are some rich white people, but by and large, there's no such thing as a, a, an advantage afforded to you just on the basis of your skin color alone. What he says, essentially, is the suffering that you enjoy, and not enjoy, but the suffering that you have as a white person, sure, you may currently have suffered a wrong because of the shipping of your job overseas, losing your job to machinery, but that is a current suffering, and it isn't connected in a systemic way to past injustices against people who are white just on the basis that they're white alone. Noah acknowledges, he, he he's sympathetic to his question asker in the audience, it does block a white person because you go, I'm poor and I'm white, where's the privilege? And then it was pretty funny, I'll, I'll provide a link to the clip below, you wanna watch the whole thing, but he's like, I wish I could activate my privilege, white privilege, give me something. He's a comedian as well of a, as a political commentator. But uh, he said it's hard to accept that you have benefits because of the color, color of your skin if you cannot see the benefits that you have. So he does empathize with the question asker and, and white people in America who are, are having to many people for the first time wake up to the reality of their privilege. 
because it's hard to see it, especially if you're suffering. Now, there's a book that I put on the screen there that it's called White Fragility. And as the subtitle says, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. I recommend the book. I'll provide a link to it below. As the author Robin D'Angelo says, quote, it is white people's responsibility to be less fragile. People of color don't need to twist themselves into knots trying to navigate us as painlessly as possible. Again, being a white person, I don't know what it's like to be an African-American in the United States. I, I can't imagine or comprehend that experience because I've never lived it. But from what I've been told and what I can at least conceptually understand, black people, when they go out, very much have to be the norm is, is the white norm. And so when they navigate their job, when they navigate stores and so on, they have to present themselves, talk in a way that white people will receive and not automatically because of the way they talk or the way they dress or the way their hair is done, make assumptions about them that they're poor, that they're uh, a criminal, that they have problems or are lazy or lack good role models, all these stereotypes. So they have to navigate the white world in such a way that they're trying to just kind of get through and, and but when it comes to the blinders coming off, when it comes to seeking racial justice now especially, it's our responsibility as white people, this is just me talking to the white people, to be less fragile, to hear the hard truths and to just listen and try to accept them instead of coming back with arguments or reasons why they're not the case or and with white privilege especially White people will tend to resist that, and that in and of itself is a symptom or a sign that they have white privilege because they haven't really had to think about the way that they have an advantage over other people in the past. Now, Noah draws an analogy to golf in trying to get people to understand what white privilege is and how those advantages are conferred. It's not like you're just gifted a ton of stuff, though that may be the case with generational wealth. But more often than not, it's just that you're not handicapped in the way that African-Americans are regarding trying to get ahead in society. So as he says there, quote, Think of it more like golf. Don't think of it as a privilege then. Think of it like a handicap. In golf, they acknowledge that you need so many advantages to be competitive in the game. So you're essentially gifted or fronted a bunch of strokes when you play someone else who has better abilities. If you're a black person in America from slavery, from day one, the number of injustices that have held black people back in America amounts to an insurmountable hurdle. Just look at land. The amount of wealth you can acquire over time if you own land is exponential. Taking that away from them is crippling. So you had slaveholders that even you have slaveholders that owned the land and the property. And then even when slaves were set free, they couldn't own property. It was nearly impossible to, to get land. And then you have when African-Americans could get land, they were given land at a higher interest rate compared to white people of the same risk level financially. And so it was very difficult to get loans to actually then 
because of less wealth, it was difficult to put a down payment on a house. And when you have land, you can then take out loans based on your land. You get the benefits of not just throwing away money to rent and so on. So just taking away their land is uh, an advantage, a disadvantage against them. So if you as a white person are having trouble coming to grips with your your privilege, just think of it like you are an amazing golfer. Let's say you're Tiger Woods, even though he's African-American. Let's let's say you're Tiger Woods. You're an amazing golfer and you have a zero handicap. You have a scratch handicap. Let's say you're a person of a lesser ability and in order to compete equally with that person who's really good, you would need to be fronted a bunch of strokes. So your handicap would be your average of how much over par you hit. So if that right there, he says, imagine that black people have a handicap because they've had through systemic racism, so many disadvantages afforded to them that their ability to get ahead is much lower. So they need to be fronted a bunch of strokes just to compete equally with their white counterparts. So instead of thinking as white privilege is giving you a ton of stuff, and if you don't have all this stuff and you're having a hard time, then there is no white privilege. Well, actually, you as a white person just have the advantage of not having all those disadvantages heaped against you. You have essentially like a scratch handicap that is zero. Others, African-Americans, may have a high handicap, let's say 14 or something like that, in order for you both to go out and, let's say, when you're getting a job, compete equally. Now, you might say, is reparations just a pipe dream? Is it just something that's totally off in the distance and not really possible? No. Actually, right now, there are bills put in place to explore and hammer out the details of reparations. So the first bill, we'll look at a few a few things from that bill, is H.R. 40. So House of Representatives has a bill currently sitting there right now that is the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act. And Congressman John Lewis says the following. So Congressman John Lewis actually marched in Selma uh, with Martin Luther King Jr. And he's the civil rights activist from long time ago. He's also a senator. And as he says, people should be prepared to debate reparations. So part of what we're going to be doing in the latter part of this video is looking at an argument for reparations. You should be ready to have these ideas in mind for when people actually ask, well, what are, what's the possibility of reparations for African Americans? So Cheney Rice is the author and was essentially interviewing John Lewis in light of all that's happened. He, he wanted to find out what does John Lewis think about this? He's seen so much history in the struggle for civil rights for African Americans. What does he think? And so he asked him, quote, do you think that reparations are on the table and politically possible? And Lewis says, I think it is a piece of legislation that will be considered and there will be support for it. Remember the bills that we're going to look at, the bill we're going to look at, they're to explore the possibility, but hopefully something exploring the possibility actually translates in, into policy and law and a piece of legislation that we as Americans can vote on. Now, it could take time to educate enough people and get enough members that will be committed and in Senate, Senate quarters 
there there'll be strong opposition. Remember, the House is currently Democrat and the the Senate is Republican. So there's going to be a lot of pushback probably from the Republican-led Senate. But it's something that we need to put on the House floor and the Senate's floor and debate. In light of what has happened in the past, I tell you, people should be prepared and ready to engage in a debate. And that's what we're doing today. We're getting ready and prepared to engage in a debate about reparations. Now, the goal of Bill H.R. 40 is to address, I kept saying undress, I don't know why, undress the fundamental injustice. I think that's fine too, actually. But it's not to undress the fundamental injustice. It's to address the fundamental injustice, cruelty, brutality, and inhumanity of slavery in the United States and in the 13 American colonies between, it's a long date range, 1619 and 1865, and to establish a commission to study and consider a national apology. Remember, we, when we started the video, we were talking about the need for, for to ask for forgiveness, the need for an apology, and how you can't just move on and act like nothing happened. It's good we're trying to be Pressure, putting on pressure for change. It's good, the, the movement by Black Lives Matter, Matter to defund the police. That is, to put pressure to reform policing and police policies, even up to and including dis, disbanding uh, certain forces that are just ridden with uh, bad cops and problems. But that isn't enough. That is, we need to actually, as it says there, to establish a commission to study and consider a national apology and proposal for reparations for the institution of slavery. Its subsequent de jure and de facto, so basically those are fancy terms, that means things that were actually established in law and things that were sort of unspoken but not formally in law, racial and economic discrimination against African Americans and the impact of these forces on living African Americans to make recommendations to Congress on appropriate remedies and for other purposes. So the goal is to make these recommendations to Congress that hopefully can translate into legislation that actually remedies some of these past uh, injustices and forms of discrimination that have officially and unofficially disadvantaged black people in America. Now, here are six facts that the bill talks about that it's important to discuss. One, approximately four million African Americans and their descendants were enslaved in the United States and colonies that became the United States from 1619 to 1865. Two, the institution of slavery was constitutionally and statutorily sanctioned by the government of the United States from 1789 through 1865. So you have actually embedded in the laws and the Constitution slavery itself. In addition, we have number three, that the slavery that flourished in the United States constituted an immoral and inhumane deprivation of Africans' life, liberty, African citizenship rights, and cultural heritage, and denied them the fruit of their own labor. That's going to be key to Boxel's argument, as you'll see in a moment. It denied them the fruit. Additionally, a preponderance of scholarly, legal, 
community evidentiary documentation, and popular culture markers constitute the basis for inquiry into the ongoing effects of the institution of slavery and its legacy of persistent systemic structures of discrimination on living African Americans and society in the United States. And you We've seen that graphically in the form of the treatment of African Americans as they're policed. And five, following the abolition of slavery, the United States government at the federal, state, and local level continued to perpetuate, condone, and often profit from practices that continued to brutalize and disadvantage African Americans, including sharecropping, convict leasing, Jim Crow, redlining, unequal education, and disproportionate treatment at the hands of the criminal justice system. We have number six, that as a result of the historic and continued discrimination, African Americans continue to suffer debilitating economic, educational, and health hardships, including, but not limited to, having nearly 1 million black people incarcerated, an unemployment rate more than twice the current white unemployment rate, and an average of less than 1 16th, 1 16th of the wealth of white families, a disparity which has worsened, not improved over time, end quote. Now, I'll just mention that California actually has a piece of legislation very similar to H.R. 40, but at the state level, and it's AB 3121, and I'll provide a link to it below if you want to check it out. Now, the BET founder, not the BET founder, but that's BET founder, called for just recently, but he's had it on his website, he said since 2019, $14 trillion in reparations for slavery. Question you might wonder is, how do we do this? What's, what's a actual number that would be relevant and right and fair and just? Well, he has reasoning behind it, but we're going to look at some of the reasoning for even calling for reparations. As Robert Johnson, the founder of BET, urged, now is time to go big. Wealth transfer is what's needed. Think about this. Since 200 plus years or so of slavery, labor taken with no compensation is a wealth transfer. Denial of access to education, which is a primary driver of accumulation of income and wealth, is a wealth transfer. As he continues, when you put all of these factors together, lack of access to education, lack of access to home ownership, and discrimination, you've had for the past 200 years, in effect, a wealth transfer from white Americans away from African Americans. So you have African Americans doing labor, and instead of reaping the full benefits and rewards for their labor due to the systemic issues and discrimination and racism that, that confronts them, then you have essentially a transfer away from them and to white Americans due to lack of access to education. Previously, we talked about lack of access to home ownership and so on. Now let's go ahead and take a look at Bernard Boxel. And his, the paper from him is The Morality of Reparation. So who is Bernard Boxel? Well, he is a philosopher and he has argued 
for the African-American cause for quite a long time. First, a little bit about him. He's Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at University of North Carolina. He specializes in political philosophy and African-American philosophy. His books include Blacks and Social Justice, Race and Racism, and A History of African-American Political Thought. He also has a massive amount of papers that he's authored, put in journals, and some of those papers are really interesting, including papers related to policing and, and race. And he is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is very prestigious. Now, here's the big idea. So, Boxel distinguishes compensation versus reparation and concludes that, quote, since it is by demanding and giving justice where it is due that members of a community continually reaffirm their belief in each other's equality, a stable and equitable society is not possible without reparation being given and demanded when it is due. So remember about the, the quote by the congresswoman that we talked about at the start of the video. She was saying like, look, in order for us to really move forward, we have to look to our past and try to make a Ends. We have to atone for the sins of our past, so to speak, in order to successfully and fully actually move forward. Now, Boxel takes that a step further and says that actually reparations essentially need to be given and demanded when it is due. So it's not like, hey, it would be nice if African Americans were offered reparation for slavery and all the systemic injustices that have historically been visited upon them in the United States. It's like, no, actually it is right, morally speaking, to demand it when it's due. Now, essentially, Martin Luther King said in, in his I Have a Dream, one of the things that he said in his I Have a Dream speech is America wrote a black people a bad check. Now, most of you probably know what a bad check is, but today we just use cards. But if you write a bad check, then when the bank goes to cash it, there are insufficient funds and it's essentially worthless. It just gets kicked back. You don't actually get any funds out of it because there aren't sufficient funds to cover it. So Dr. King says that essentially America wrote a bad check to African-Americans. They promised in their founding documents certain things that weren't delivered. As he says here, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. And remember, they, this was the march and the giant gathering for civil rights that culminated at the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the, the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens or color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. And he continues, but we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. And this is that hope that you feel right now as people are protesting, as people are marching, as people are taking to the street, as people are demanding for policy change, as people are demanding for uh, policing change, as people are trying to think outside the box, trying to actually solve this problem of racial injustice. 
this was the, his hope back then. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So Dr. King, even though he witnessed and experienced so much oppression and injustice, he had not yet given up on the core ideals of this nation. Remember Cory Cory Booker's quote, the, the core ideal is love. Love is at the root of our, of, of our country, and it's given by, in part by giving people the right to pursue life, liberty, and, the, and happiness. And so we have come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. And I believe that part of making good on that promise, part of getting back and cashing that check at the, the bank of justice does involve reparations. That is some sort of restitution for past wrongs and some sort of official apology for the harms done to African-Americans by whites and by the government. Now, what is compensation? So here's where the golf metaphor, I think, is most apt. Remember, Boxel divides compensation from reparation. And he says that in compensation, essentially, you compensate someone for the harms they've suffered in order to level the playing field to ensure that competition is fair going forward. So let's say you get in a car accident and you total your car. It's a total loss. The insurance company will, to some degree, they'll, they'll come up with a number and they'll gift you that number so that you can replace your old car with a new car. Could you imagine if every time that you there was a crash, and especially if it's not your fault, you just lost that car and you weren't compensated? Well, cars allow you to get around and go to jobs. And so it would severely hamper a person's ability to make money and to continue thriving if every time that something bad happened to them, they weren't in some degree to some degree, compensated. Losers of the competition are compensated so they can compete again and compete on fair terms. So compensation is essentially forward-looking. We restore and give you certain financial uh, recovery and for harms done and, and things lost at a particular time so that in the future you can compete fairly. And it's actually justly due for not just harms com committed against you by other people, but also like so-called acts of God, right? Earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, fires due to lightning, and so on. Now, compensation is justified based on two requirements. Each individual is equal in dignity and worth to every individual, and hence has a right equal to that of any other to arrange his life as he sees fit and to pursue and acquire what he considers valuable and two the individuals involved must be members of a community now what is reparation by contrast well reparation is relevant it has those rough characteristics especially the last two i mentioned except it is really focused on when you're unjustly infringed on, you have your rights infringed on or you, you, you're harmed in other ways by another person. And it's, it's relevant when someone unjustly infringes, as it says, on another person's right to pursue what the person values. So acts of God are off the table. Reparation is about 
people-to-people harms. There are two ways that this can happen, either dispossession, so you take away from a person something that they own, or you thwart, that is, you block the ability to secure something that that person wants to own. Now, Boxel thinks that reparation is owed. He says that current white Americans owe current black Americans, quote, reparation for the injustices of slavery inflicted on the ancestors of the black population by the ancestors of the white population. Now, you might wonder, that's kind of abstract. And so he tries to break down reparation and analogize it to slavery, why why reparation is owed for, due to slavery, by just looking at a simple case that starts out simple and then gets tweaked. So it's a case of Tom, Dick, and Harry. In the basic case, let's take a look at this, where reparation is due. Tom has an indisputable moral right to possession of a certain item say a bicycle, and Dick steals the bicycle from Tom. Here, clearly, Dick owes Tom at least the bicycle and a concession for error in reparation. So if Tom has a moral right to his bike because he bought it fairly and hasn't in any way gifted, given away that right of ownership such that someone else really owns it, then when it's stolen by Dick, then Dick, in order to actually repair the damage done, he owes him at least the bicycle back and an apology and a concession for error, some kind of concession to make amends to atone for what he stole from him, and that is a form of reparation. Now, we can twist the case just a little bit. We're getting closer to slavery, but but here's another twist before we get there. Dick steals the bicycle from Tom and gives it to a different person, Harry. Here again, okay, even if he is innocent of complicity in the theft and does not know that this gift was stolen from him, right? So he just received the bike, Harry. He wasn't like part of the scheme to steal the bike. He just got it. And he didn't even know that it was stolen. He's just like, wow, Dick just gave me a bike. This is so cool. Even if that's the case, Harry must return the bicycle to Tom. He can't say, hey, look, it was given to me by Dick. And uh, sorry, Tom, I'm not going to give it back to you because uh, I didn't know it was stolen and I wasn't part of the stealing of it. Dick stole it from Tom, so essentially Harry has to return it to Tom. With the acknowledgement that, he might say, look, although I was innocent or blameless, I didn't rightfully possess the bicycle, so I got to give it back. Now, here's the final complication. So Dick steals the bicycle from Tom and gives it to Harry. In the meantime, Tom dies but leaves a will clearly conferring his right to ownership of the bicycle to his son, Jim. Here again, we should have little hesitation in saying that Harry must return the bicycle to Jim. So even though Dick stole the bike from Tom and gave it to Harry, and then Tom died and, and conferred his right of ownership to his son Jim, even though Tom's not around to give the back, bike back to, if he willed the bike to Jim, then it's the case that Harry must return the bike to Jim, even though Tom, the original owner that he stole it from, is no longer alive. So here you can probably already see the case of slavery creeping in. Let's actually look at how Boxel categorizes this analogy. Quote, 
the slaves had an indisputable moral right to the products of their labor. These products were stolen from them by the slave masters who ultimately passed them on to their descendants. So we have their labor, like the bicycle, being stolen, being passed on or willed to their descendants. The slaves presumably have conferred their rights of ownership to the products of their labor to their descendants. Thus, the descendants of slave masters are in possession of wealth to which the descendants of slaves have rights. So even though the the person that that was originally the, their labor was stolen from, the descendants of the slave masters that inherited the 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 result of the labor of the slave that was stolen from them, those descendants now actually need to give it back to the descendants of the African Americans from which it was stolen. The fact that the original people from which their labor was stolen and that did the stealing, the slave masters and the slaves, the fact that they're not still around doesn't matter. Is essentially neither here nor there because the wealth was transferred. The wealth was gifted down the chain according to descendants. And over time, white People came to possess much more of the wealth, accumulated, whereas African-Americans, as time went on, the, the gap widened, came to possess less and less of the wealth due to not possessing, as we talked about earlier, access to education, land ownership, and so on. Hence, the descendants of slave masters must return this wealth to the descendant of slaves with a concession that they were not rightfully in possession of it. So it's not like they're culpable. It's not like white people currently living today that are subject to the accumulation of wealth and, and privilege that comes along with it. It's not like they willfully stole it from, from them, but they inherited it. And because of that, they can't say, well, yeah, just like in the bike case, yeah, uh, it was gifted to me. I didn't know about the stealing. Uh, I didn't participate in the stealing. I wasn't obviously alive when this was going on. So how can you come try to get this from me? I'm blameless. Well, still, it doesn't matter. You're in possession of something that's not rightfully yours, namely the wealth that was gifted because it was it was stolen from the labor labor of slaves. Now, a point of clarification Boxel mentions, and this is good to mention, it's not being claimed that the descendants of slaves must seek reparation from those among the white population who happen to be the descendant of slave owners. So you don't have to like go hunting through the heritage records and like find out, okay, who is a descendant of a slave owner? And so who do we go to as a uh, as an American society trying to rectify these injustices? that have accumulated. You, you, we don't need to search the the records for uh, people's descendants to find the people that are actually the descendants and then transfer money from them to the people who are descendants of slaves. This would be the case if slavery had produced uh, for the slave owners merely like specific hordes of gold or silver or diamonds, which could be passed on in a very concrete way from father to son, right? They worked the land for us because of that. We, we gained all these bars of gold and you as my son, I gift all these bars of gold. And then we can imagine the bars of gold then get gifted down to the next generation and the next generation, right? And you have this like actual tangible thing you can point to and say, there's the stolen goods, right? We don't have that. So as a matter of fact, slavery produced not these specific hordes of goods, physical, tangible goods 
things, but wealth which has been passed down mainly to descendants of the white community to the relative exclusion of the descendants of slaves. Thus, it is the white community as a whole that prevents the descendants of slaves from exercising their rights of ownership. And the white community as a whole that must bear that cost of reparation. So it isn't just a part of the white community, it's the white community as a whole that must bear that cost. I hope you have found this video helpful and challenging as we've worked through it. Next time I'm gonna actually continue with reparations, another step, we'll look at another argument for reparations, and then we'll consider a counter argument. So you remember, it's important as we were talking about earlier, for you to be ready to debate and discuss these important issues, are reparations owed to African-Americans? If so, how does that come about? And actually considering counterpoints to the fact that reparations are owed will help strengthen your own case if you think reparations are owed. As always, keep thinking ethically and living wisely. Keep living the philosophical life.